this afternoon, our catechism lesson is from Lord's Day 4 about God's justice. And in preparation for that, I'd like to read with you from Romans chapter 5. We'll read verse 12 to 21. Romans chapter 5, we'll start at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses, brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I invite you also to take up your book of praise and to read with me from the Belgic Confession, Article 15. You can find that in your book of praise on page 505. Belgian Confession, Article 15, and this is the Church's Confession and summarizes the teaching of Scripture about original sin. Article 15, we believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has spread throughout the whole human race. It is a corruption of the entire nature of man and a hereditary evil which infects even infants in their mother's womb. As a root, it produces in man all sorts of sin. It is therefore so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn the whole human race. It is not abolished nor eradicated even by baptism, for sin continually streams forth like water welling up from this woeful source. Yet in spite of all this, 
Original sin is not imputed to the children of God, to their condemnation, but by His grace and mercy is forgiven them. This does not mean that the believers may sleep peacefully in their sin, but that the awareness of this corruption may make them often groan as they eagerly wait to be delivered from this body of death. In this regard, we reject the error of the Pelagians, who say that this sin is only a matter of imitation. Let's turn now to Lord's Day 4, from the Heidelberg Catechism, page 520, and that'll be the focus for our message this afternoon. Lord's Day 4. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in His law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that He was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin, as well as our actual sins. Therefore, He will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as He has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but He is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. This is the church's confession. Well, dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last week from Lord's Day 3, we saw that we were made in the image of God. And even after we fell into sin, even after God's good image was shattered in us, there are still remnants of God's good design in us. And part of that good design includes a sense of justice, that we have a sense of what is fair or what is right. I'm sure the boys and girls here can tell you if you get less ice cream for dessert than your brother or sister, well, that's just not fair. If you get paid less than someone who does the same job as you, you'll probably protest. Or if one people group is oppressed because of their racial background, that's a terrible injustice. All of us have a sense of justice, and that's a remnant of the way that God has made us because He is just and perfectly fair in all He does. And He made us also to reflect His justice. Well, Lord's Day 4 is all about the justice of God. In Lord's Day 2, we saw that by nature we hate God and our neighbor. We're rebels against Him. And in Lord's Day 3, we saw that this sin, it's not God's fault because He made us good. And now, in Lord's Day 4, we ask if it's right for God to expect perfection from us, if it's fair for Him to punish sin, 
and what about His mercy? I've summarized the message this afternoon with this theme, God is completely just, and we'll see that this is a wonderful truth. God's justice is an awesome thing for which we ought to adore Him, and it's also a humbling truth because it reminds us of the depth of our depravity and the punishment that we deserve, punishment which God has poured out on His only Son. We'll see that God is completely just in three areas, in His requirement for perfection, in His punishment for sin, and thirdly, in His mercy. God is completely just first in His requirement. You'll recall that we're in the the first section of the Catechism, which deals with our sin and misery, which is part of what we need to know to experience the comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 1. And that's where we'll end up this afternoon. We'll see the just judgment of God, which we squarely deserve, has been poured out on His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. But first, our human nature tries to see if there's any other way out of our sin. Question and answer 9 asks, if God is any, in any way unjust in requiring perfection from us. You see, God still expects us to obey Him after the fall into sin. Is that fair? since we're not able to do it anymore. Was it fair for God to give the Ten Commandments to Israel, knowing that He would break each one of them? Was it fair for Jesus to explain the deeper meaning of the law in the Sermon on the Mount, knowing that each disciple had murdered in his heart, knowing that each disciple had looked at a woman lustfully and therefore committed adultery in his heart and broken all the other commandments which Jesus explained? Was it fair for God to require that perfection? Well, the answer of question and answer nine reminds us of Lord's Day 3, that God made man perfectly able to do it. We saw last week that God made us to be like Him in true righteousness and holiness. That means Adam and Eve were able to live with God because they could keep His law perfectly. Think about that. They loved God more than anything else. They respected God's name, which was glorious in all creation, and they reflected that love also in their relationships. Adam loved Eve perfectly, with no stain of selfishness. Adam was never envious of Eve, wanting something for himself that she had. Adam loved her completely, without any lust. And Eve also responded in perfect love to Adam, respecting him, loving him selflessly, submitting to his leadership with no resentment. That's how God made them. That's how God made us, able to keep his law perfectly. After God had made man and woman, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good, Genesis 1.31. Whereas the Catechism says God so created man that he was able to do it. And the answer continues, but man, at the instigation of the devil in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Notice how it fronts man as the subject, man as the responsible one. What did man do? Well, he was deliberately disobedient. And this is important that we understand sin as a deliberate disobedience. More than taking a piece of fruit from a tree, it represented an attitude of rebellion against God, against the Creator. 
God gave them clear instructions, instructions which were there for their good. You can eat from all the fruit of the trees, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will die. That was God's clear instruction. But Adam and Eve broke that command. They deliberately disobeyed God and rebelled against Him. And now that sin of rebellion, of deliberate disobedience, beloved, that's the same sin that lies in each of our hearts by nature. When our question and answer nine asks if God is just to maintain His standard, absolutely, because God has not changed even though we have. He is the unchanging God and His justice, it comes from His own being. The change in our nature, it comes from us, not from God. It's because of our deliberate disobedience and not because of Him. It's our fault, not God's. And so, God is just to maintain His standard. To illustrate, imagine you gave your son $5 and you asked him to buy the newspaper, and he went down to the shop and spent the $5 on lollies, and then he came back and he said, well, he's got no $5, so he couldn't buy the newspaper. But you tell him, you still want your newspaper, you'd have to find his own $5. Was that fair? Absolutely. You've given him the means to fulfill your request. And in the same way, we confess that God is absolutely just in maintaining His standard. He created man able to keep His law, but man robbed himself of the ability to perform that obedience. And this, beloved, is a self-robbery. Notice how it says that, man robbed himself. To give one more example, the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, he had everything he ever wanted in his father's house, but he took that inheritance early, he lived a, a wild life of partying, and he wasted it all. Now, this son, when he ended up in the pig pen, was that his father's fault? Well, no, his father had given him so much in his house, but it was completely his own fault that he was there. It was a self-robbery. He had robbed himself of all the gifts he had in his father's house. And in a similar way, Lord's Day 4 says that Adam robbed himself. It wasn't God's fault at all. He robbed himself of his gifts. What were these gifts? Well, these gifts included the ability to keep God's law. They included a sound mind, which was able to know God and to perceive spiritual reality. Included an upright will, which was able to want to do the right thing. He wanted to serve God. He wanted to love Eve. And also the gift of pure affections or pure emotions, which delighted in good things. All of man's desires were good and pure. Well, those are the gifts that Adam lost. These are the gifts of which he robbed himself. And as Lord's Day 4 says, it's not only himself that he robbed, but he also robbed all his descendants. Now, this raises a bigger question, and that question is how we are implicated in Adam's sin and guilt. Now, there are two things here. First is that Adam's sin is passed on to us, we are polluted by his sin. And second, we also share in his guilt. So first, as a result of that original sin, the entire human race is defiled. As a disease might be passed on from one generation to another generation, so sin is passed on to every human generation. 
the source of humanity was infected, and that means that everything coming out of that source is also infected. As a spring is defiled, it's always going to be the source of dirty water. Only dirty water comes out of a dirty spring. Job said in Job 14, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Or as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of sinful nature is sinful. And so we understand that every baby born is now a sinner. That's the first thing. Because of Adam's sin, the entire human race is now polluted by sin. But second, we also share in Adam's guilt. Now, this is harder to understand. We weren't there in the garden, and yet we are responsible. As question and answer 10 points out, we are not only polluted from original sin, but we are also guilty of original sin. All of us, before a baby has done anything wrong, before a baby has seen the light of day, he or she is guilty of original sin. That's what Paul says in Romans 5 verse 12, death spread to all men because all sinned. Is that just for God? To put it a different way, why am I held responsible for Adam's sin if I never got a chance like he did? Is it just for God to expect from me what he expected from Adam and Eve? Well, to understand this, we need to understand Adam's position in the world. We read together from Romans 5, where Paul writes about original sin. And in Romans 5, verse 14, Paul says, Adam is a type of him who is to come, that is, Jesus Christ. Adam was like Jesus Christ in an important way. You see, both Adam and Christ have a unique, a special position in the human race, a position which was only for those two people, and that was to be a representative, to be the head of humanity. You see, when God made humans, He didn't make eight billion of them, but He made one man, and from that one man, He made woman, and they became one flesh, and from that original pair came the entire human population. As Paul said in Acts 17, 26, from one man, He made every nation under heaven. And so, we understand that there is unity in the human race. That's different, by the way, than the angels. When God made angels, He made many of them, and each of them were responsible for their own actions. That's why some of the angels fell, but some of them didn't. But mankind, God has made to be one, united under Adam. And God placed Adam at the head of humanity in a unique position where his actions would affect all of his offspring. And so when Adam sinned, he wasn't only robbing himself, but he was also robbing all of his descendants of the gifts with which he was created. When Bob Menzies, Australian Prime Minister, announced that Australia was at war in 1939, it wasn't just Bob Menzies at war, but our entire country was at war. The actions of our leader implicated all of us. Or if a bank CEO makes a bad decision that puts the entire bank into debt, well, it's not only the CEO, but all of the shareholders are in debt. And in a similar way, when Adam sinned, we sinned in him. 
well, it's hard for us to understand. And there is some mystery involved, which, which our human minds may never be able to fully grasp. But it's important to note that Paul writes about our connection to Adam, and he compares that to how we are connected to Jesus Christ. Now, remember, we saw earlier that there are two heads of humanity. Adam was the head of all humanity, but so is our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of all who believe in Him. Now, His righteousness is given to all who believe in Him, and we confess that we are one with Christ. Now, Romans 5 puts the first Adam and the second Adam side by side. In verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation... Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. See, there's a comparison here. Both Adam and Christ are the head of all humanity. And we understand that by our connection to Jesus Christ, because He is our head, because He suffered in our place as our representative, because we are one with Him, we are saved. Is it fair for God to treat us based on our relationship to Christ? Well, absolutely. We don't normally have a problem with that, do we? And if that is how God has treated us in Christ... We ought not to question the justice of God when He made Adam our head, which was perfectly just for God to do. So, if you look again at our question, is God unjust by requiring us to obey Him? We see that God is completely just in His requirement. We are sinners, and we share the guilt of Adam. Which leads to our second question, how will God treat such disobedience? Could God lighten the punishment that we deserve? Can He just forget about our rebellion and not worry about punishing it? Or to put the question another way, if God is not unjust toward us, could He be unjust toward Himself? Of course, it sounds wrong when you ask it like that, doesn't it? And the answer is certainly not. God is terribly angry with both our original sin and our actual sins. As we've seen, we're all guilty of original sin, of our sinning in Adam, of having that same rebellious anti-God attitude deep in our hearts, that attitude of deliberate disobedience. And it's from our rebellious hearts that come all of our actual sins, those actions of hatred toward God or our neighbor. And God is terribly angry with both, both original and actual sin. God has revealed Himself in His Word as a God who hates sin. We sang from Psalm 5 earlier, and David writes, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. You hate all workers of iniquity. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Or Psalm 7 verse 11, God is angry with the wicked every day. Make no mistake, beloved, God does not treat sin lightly. God is angry with sin. 
And this hatred for sin, it comes from God's holy character, that He is set apart from anything evil or impure. He who is the highest good cannot have sin dwelling with Him, but He is perfection in all He is and in all He does. That's why God hates sin, because He is so holy, because it is so against His character. And further, just as God's hatred for sin comes from His holy character, so does His justice. He is just and righteous in all His ways. He doesn't appeal to a higher standard of justice than Himself, but He is the standard of justice. He defines justice. Could God just lighten the punishment? Well, that would go against His own just and righteous being. No, sin, which God hates so much, must be punished. The Catechism teaches that God will punish sin both now and eternally. You see, it wouldn't be enough for sin to only be punished in time, but it's so serious that it deserves an eternal punishment. Why is that? Well, it's because sin is committed against the most high majesty of God. It's question and answer 11 says. I'd like you to turn with me to the Canons of Dort, chapter 2, on page 572 of your book of praise. We can see there's the same truth here, the, the nature of sin. Canons of Dort, chapter 2, article 1. I'd like to read that article with you. It says this, God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. As He Himself has revealed in His Word, His justice requires that our sins, committed against His infinite majesty, should, not, should be punished, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, both in body and soul. We cannot escape these punishments unless satisfaction is made to the justice of God. Beloved, every sin is committed against God's infinite majesty. That's why every sin is worthy of an eternal punishment. It doesn't mean that every sin is just as bad, because some sins are definitely worse than others. But while some sins deserve a light eternal punishment, others deserve a heavy eternal punishment. Beloved, hell is a reality. Now, Jesus spoke about hell. He talked about the eternal destruction of body and soul. He warned about the reality of forever being cast away from the presence of God, being cast into outer darkness, where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth, an eternal state of rebellion against God, an eternal death. It shows the seriousness of sin. It shows us the absolute holiness of God who will punish sin now and eternally because He is just and because sin cannot dwell with Him. Could God just lighten the punishment or ignore the sin? No, He is terribly angry with sin and His justice must be satisfied. And beloved, this is a good thing. Imagine a world where wrong was not punished, where people could get away with murder or violent oppression or abuse or rape or destroying the property of others or genocide. Imagine a world where these things were not punished. It's unthinkable. 
For the psalmist often cried out to God for justice to be done. They cried out for wrongs to be avenged. For example, Psalm 10, it speaks about a wicked man who murdered innocent people and was actually on the lookout for innocent people. He looked out for them, lurking in ambush like a, like a lion in his thicket. And the psalmist writes, the helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. And the psalm calls upon God to rise up as judge, to rise up and punish such a wicked person. There is so much injustice in this world. Perhaps you've even experienced injustice in your own life. Imagine a world where wrong was not punished, that's unthinkable. And if we have such a sense of justice, where we understand that justice must be done, and where we long for it to be done, we who are made in God's image and thus possess a small sense of His justice, how much more true is that of Him, the one who is the source of all justice, the almighty God, the just judge, the source and fountain of all justice. Beloved, the justice of God is an awesome reality, and He will ensure that every wrong will be satisfied. His own being demands that justice will be done. His anger against sin must be satisfied. God cannot just ignore sin or brush it under the carpet, but we confess He is perfectly just, in His punishment. And that leads us to our third question. What about God's mercy? Hasn't God also revealed Himself as a merciful God? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's a refrain which, which is repeated throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Psalms. And God revealed Himself to Moses in Exodus 34 and said, The Lord, the Lord God, a Lord who is merciful, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. What is mercy? Well, it's not giving someone a punishment which they deserve. For example, if you're caught speeding, well, you deserve a speeding fine. But the policeman might let you off without paying the fine. That's mercy. It's not giving someone the punishment they deserve. Isn't God merciful? Doesn't He not give to us what we deserve? Well, God is wonderfully merciful, beloved, and His mercy shines forth much more clearly when we understand that His mercy does not compromise His justice. You might remember that God is called a simple being in Belgic Confession Article 1. Simple, that means that God is not made up of parts, like 50% justice and 50% mercy. You just hope you end up on the merciful side. No, our God is not like that. He is one being. He is all of His perfections all at the same time. He is 100% merciful and He is 100% just. He is both just and merciful at the same time. And these attributes, beloved, God's mercy and His justice, they meet at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, where we see the Son of God, one with us, the one whom the Father has appointed to be the source of salvation for all who believe in Him. We see Jesus Christ, true and eternal God, and thus able to bear that infinite punishment which we deserve. We see in Him the perfect justice and boundless mercy of our God. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Behold the Lord Jesus, your Savior, 
who bore the just punishment of God for all of our sin. That's God's mercy. It's not to revoke His justice, to do away with His justice, but to pour out that just judgment upon His own Son, who willingly bore it on our behalf. The justice and mercy of God meet at the cross. There we see that God is 100% just. We see that at the cross, that He punishes sin. God is 100% merciful. We see that at the cross, where God punishes, pours out that punishment upon His own Son in our place. What a wonderful reality we confess as children of God. If you look back again at Canons of Dort, chapter 2, you'll notice that the word infinite comes back a few times. We saw in Article 1 that sin is committed against God's infinite majesty. But in Article 2, we confess that God in His infinite mercy has given His only begotten Son to make satisfaction for us. And in Article 3, we see that this sacrifice and satisfaction for sins is of infinite value and worth. Beloved, this is a wonderful truth that all those who belong to Jesus Christ can confess. God will not punish our sin at all, not our original sin, not our actual sin. He won't punish our sin in this life or the next. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all shall be made alive. And so if we experience hardship in life, it's not a punishment for sin. It may be discipline, yes, Hebrews 10 and Proverbs 3 speak about God as a a father who disciplines his children. He may even discipline us for specific sins, but God never punishes his children in this life or eternally because he is infinitely merciful. He has poured out that punishment upon his son completely. Well, isn't that a humbling reality? That Jesus Christ represents me on that cross. That's the confession of the believer. It was my sin that held him there. And I trust in him as my head. And therefore, I know that God has poured out his just judgment on my sin to show me mercy, to remove the temporal and eternal punishment that I deserve. It places my life in perspective that even though I deserve condemnation in Adam, yet I receive mercy in Christ an undeserved gift of God. What a humble, humbling truth. Isn't that the effect of the cross, beloved? It, it humbles us. We realize that we don't bring anything. We come with completely empty hands. And it is also a liberating truth. When we see the infinite mercy of God, Jesus Christ has bought me and given me immense worth and value. I am precious in God's sight, that He has loved me so much that He sent His own Son to bring me into His family. Beloved, who are we that God would pour out an infinite punishment against His own Son to show us infinite mercy? I hope that fills you with love for God as He has revealed Himself. And I hope that makes you tremble with adoration. Give to our God immortal praise. Mercy and truth are all His ways. Wonders of grace to God belong. Repeat His mercies in your song. Amen.